Hello, friends. Uh, long time no speak. We're back and it's all totally fine and normal. Did I take an unexpected, unplanned and entirely too long break because my mental health took a spectacular nosedive last year? Maybe. <laughs> Did I wake up every week and say to myself, I'm going to relaunch the podcast this week before staring into the void for eight hours and achieving literally nothing? Also, maybe. Is it concerning to me that while I was like 90% normal for most of the lockdowns, the second I had to interact with the world, I became a ghost of my former self inhabiting a barely animate meat sack? Look, don't worry about it. The point is, I'm here now. I'm fine. My brain is extremely normal. And it's consuming pop culture content in a normal and healthy way. So housekeeping at the top, uh, we're going to test a couple of things this year. We're sticking with the fortnightly episode structure uh, just to keep me and Wesley sane. <laughs> um, we might also trial some format stuff. Um, I'll tell you more about it once I work out what it is. <laughs> Uh, or we can just pretend I never said this and we'll keep shit exactly the same. And if you ask me about it, I'll deny everything. Uh, anyway, I was looking in our company portal the other day for some mandatory training about like not clicking phishing links or something. And I was blasted with this series of sessions about mindfulness and resilience I don't know if you've ever had to sit through a corporate session on mindfulness and resilience, but due to the various industries I've worked in, I've been to hundreds. <laughs> and every time I go, I've never been closer to ruining someone's day by forcing them to watch me jam a ballpoint pen into my jugular. I go to the job so I have the money for the therapy so I'm resilient enough to continue attending the job so I can pay for the therapy to become resilient and so on and so forth. But it did get me thinking about the ever-present threat of having someone who works in human resources think they're qualified to tell you about achieving holistic wellness. The industry that sprung up around something that should ultimately have nothing to do with your job is a nightmare and also omnipresent. So we're going to talk about the history of wellness today, why your boss loves it and how social media is making it even more perverted. I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about the wellness industrial complex. So something about the sudden prominence of wellness as a term has always felt a little bit off to me. It was like it appeared suddenly and then like just as quickly as it arrived, it was embedded everywhere from my friendships to the TV I was watching to my job. I think it felt especially jarring to me because I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s. I was 19 when Kate Moss gave that interview that popularized the quote, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. There was like a 10-year period there where I just couldn't really buy pants, uh, lest their low-rise cut mean that my entire mons was out in public. 
I also have like a very clear memory of some socialite who very openly talked about how she really only smoked cigarettes and drank Diet Coke. It wasn't even that it was framed positively per se. Uh, it was simply published without question alongside photos of these women looking exceedingly glamorous. All of these things were fine, even if they were destroying your body or making you uncomfortable because you were very beautiful and that was good. And I remember there being this sort of slow decline in the acceptability of that kind of reporting, but in a way where it didn't really feel like it went away. It felt like as that type of coverage was retracting, wellness culture was kind of filling the void it left behind. Until suddenly it was all that was left and people who had been making it through the day on chain smoking, a no-fat latte and an egg white omelette were suddenly doing yoga and taking up vegetarianism and talking about the importance of getting up at the crack of dawn to watch the sunrise as a daily ritual for their goal setting and achievement. The last part is key. Obviously, the type of disordered eating that centers on fueling yourself entirely on caffeine is goal-oriented, but it was never fashionable to talk about the goal, really. It was important to appear effortlessly engaged with the coffee, cigarettes, and cocaine diet as an afterthought to your beautiful thinness, and not as a means of achieving thinness as the goal. Wellness culture loves goal-setting and it loves to show off the habits that allow you to hit that goal. I think this is why wellness was able to embed itself in every level of life so successfully. Coffee, cigarettes, and cocaine are not for the weak of heart, lung, or bank balance. But jogging, vegetables, journaling, those are all doable, virtuous even, and they're scalable beyond the professionally beautiful. Tech billionaires, investment bankers, and advertising overlords can all get on board with wellness, and they can push it downstream to the schmucks who toil away underneath them. Now, obviously, I'm saying all of this with a pretty hefty level of disdain. Uh, it's not that I hate jogging, vegetables, or journaling. Well, journaling or vegetables, anyway. But uh, I am wary of wellness. <laughs> so let's have a little poke around for why, shall we? Even though I've laid the scene for wellness being a relatively recent phenomenon, the term was actually coined in a 1959 essay called What High-Level Wellness Means by Dr. Halbert L. Dunn, a Canadian medical practitioner and biostatistician. To him, being well wasn't simply about not being sick. Good health, he said, was a passive state. Wellness, in contrast, was dynamic, where an individual was striving toward a higher potential of functioning. He called this high-level wellness, which he defined as, quote, an integrated method of functioning which is oriented toward maximizing the potential of which the individual is capable within the environment where he is functioning. Wellness for Dunn was not simply about the physical. You weren't treating a specific illness or even just getting ripped and becoming the perfect physical specimen. It is a fully integrated system that takes into account the mind, the body, and the spirit. And while his original essay was eventually expanded into a book in 1961, Dunn's idea was more of a sleeper hit than an overnight success. 
It was mostly associated with the New Age movement and a burgeoning interest in alternative medicine until it was introduced to Americans on a national scale in a 1979 60 Minutes interview with the founder of the Marin County Wellness Resource Centre, Dr. John W. Travis. Travis spoke about wellness as something that lived alongside traditional medicine to act as a preventative measure down the line for patients who were engaged with and attuned to their own health and well-being. In the segment, Dan Rather talks to people who have struggled to find relief for chronic conditions that have eluded traditional medicine, like a high-powered executive with chronic headaches who's been told they're caused by stress. He goes to the Wellness Resource Centre and they do some like biofeedback or something, work on some stress relievers together, bada-bing, bada-boom, the headaches have reduced significantly. Now, you might be thinking, as I was, well, yeah, if you start taking a regular hour every couple of days to sit with your eyes closed in a room, you'll probably feel less stressed overall. Now, this isn't an inherently evil thing. Understanding that there are things about your health that are connected is probably kind of good. Paying attention to the way that you're feeling so that you can understand changes also probably fine. <laughs> and if someone needs a prompt like a regular appointment or something to spend time away from their desk, then like I do have some strong feelings about why we shouldn't be structuring work that way, but I'm not going to begrudge a man who couldn't conceive of sitting quietly for an hour by himself without seeking someone external to endorse that for him. The concerning part to me, and the thing that I see in this report that sets us up for the wellness hellscape to come, is the discussion of self-care. Now, in this segment, medical professionals taking classes on understanding self-care and wellness passionately endorse taking responsibility for your own health, using only what fits for you, and becoming your own guru. And that type of rhetoric might raise your eyebrows a little, but if you're like me, you might not have been immediately able to put your finger on why in the context of an otherwise very reasonably framed video segment about supplementing traditional medicine with sometimes sitting in a comfy chair with your eyes closed. We've come a long way from 1979, and wellness is now a $3.7 trillion industry. So how can something that's supposed to be just about your relationship with yourself and your body be worth so much money? See, the thing that's enabled wellness to become such a popular concept in our late-stage capitalist vortex is that it's focused exclusively on the self. Feeling a bit crappy when you wake up in the morning? You could make changes to your diet. Trouble falling asleep at night? You could be running more. Feeling bad that your peers are more successful than you? Change that mindset, brother. Get up at 5 a.m. and start grinding. Write those goals down, visualize, and hustle, baby, hustle. Wellness here doesn't just mean that you kind of know what your body is up to. It means that you are physically beautiful, wealthy, fulfilled, and most importantly, morally righteous. This is hyper-individualism, in which you are the cause of and solution to all of your own problems. 
And because the ultimate moral good of these things is reinforced by the people around you getting healthy, wealthy, and beautiful by journaling and drinking green smoothies, it inherently lends itself to consumerism. Entire industries can spring up around selling you exactly the right green smoothie to start your day off, or the perfect journal for you to organize your visions and strive towards your dream life. You too could be a virtuous and well-balanced person if, as our friends on the 60 Minutes clip suggest, you took responsibility for your own health and became your own guru. And if you're still feeling unwell, unbalanced, or in pain, maybe a new yoga mat will help. It's got better grip, you know? It's actually not even the first time we've done this particular trend as a species. Daniela Bly has an article from 2017 exploring the German life reform movement that kicked off in the late 19th century. It was basically the same thing as wellness, except the industry that sprang up around it was like spas where you could do leather work in the sunshine and be naked in nature and take ice baths because the Victorians were always on some freak shit like that. Anyway, my point is, if you can make people feel self-conscious enough, they can almost always be guilted into buying stuff. This exclusive inward focus is also great for people like your employer, because it shifts the responsibility for your environment back onto you. People who've achieved wellness are productive, and productive people are successful and happy. It doesn't matter that you're being paid $7 an hour and have been for a decade because Megacorp actually got Rebecca from HR to read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and she's got like eight slides on how to be proactive now. So if you're not feeling healthy or wealthy or beautiful, that's actually a you problem, and you could be working harder on it. It's like catnip for corporations, you know? There are obviously a lot of problems with riding out the hyper-individualistic nature of this brand of wellness to its logical conclusion. If health, success, and beauty are all righteous things that can be achieved simply by working hard enough and doing the right thing, then by extension, your own moral failings can include everything from being poor to getting cancer. You just aren't trying hard enough not to be poor and have cancer. Have you tried journaling? What about getting up at 5am? All the world's richest and therefore presumably healthiest people get up before 5am. You're just wasting time, buddy. With the rise of social platforms like Instagram or TikTok, the most harmful version of these ideas are also finding an easier footing because people are having to perform their righteousness daily. Our insatiable quest for content has turned every idiot with a camera phone into a self-styled wellness guru. And truly, they are some of the dumbest creatures imaginable. Or they're teenagers. There's that tweet that goes around every so often that's like, every day I spend online, I run the risk of being exposed to a 14-year-old's opinion. The slight addendum to this is that every day I spend online, I run the risk of being exposed to a 14-year-old's opinion on how I could be happier and healthier. Get out of here. Talk to me when your frontal lobe is fully developed and you can vote. Anyway, children's opinions aside, I'll give you what I think is the most concerning example of this recent trend, and you can be both alert and alarmed. Now, I do not have TikTok. As a sort of mid-range millennial, uh, it's one of the first social media platforms that I didn't immediately pick up an attempt to learn. 
I've resisted because I'm frankly a little bit scared of how the algorithm works. I let TikTok videos rise up to me through other social platforms like a content-based survival of the fittest and weirdest. There are some things that persistently battle their way to me through the algorithmic recommendation. Among the inexplicable pushing of Teen Mum or Jesus content, sometimes both of them together, uh, every day I thank Jesus for the arrival of baby McKennesley with two N's and a Z. Um, anyway, among all of that content, I've started noticing videos of people who were cutting out toxic people to focus on themselves. You cannot see me, I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> These videos usually feature text in the vein of like, POV, you cut off all your friends and focus on building yourself up, followed by like a montage of cash and cars and gym progress selfies. And at first, because I'm a person who understands nuance and the complexities of interpersonal relationships, I thought, hey, maybe this is just an especially inarticulate way of expressing that they've put up some boundaries with people who might be actively causing harm in their lives, and now they're thriving. Which was unusually optimistic of me. <laughs> I, uh, I temporarily put aside the every idiot has a camera and an opinion principle, and it was to my own detriment, <laughs> because as it turned out, these people meant that they had cut off every person in their life for being toxic, in inverted commas, and now they were super productive and therefore thriving. As Laura Pitcher points out for Dazed, the logical conclusion of a society that characterizes a hyper-individualistic self-obsession as somehow being the key to well-being and success will inevitably end up treating friendships as transactional. I'm hoping that I don't have to explain to anyone who listens to this podcast how insane that is, but like, don't cut everyone you know out of your life. Don't do it! <laughs> According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, social isolation and loneliness are linked with all of the poor health outcomes that this particular wellness trend is insisting that you can avoid by cutting people off. Mental illness, development of dementia, poor sleep, high blood pressure, poor immune function. But beyond that, social isolation just also sucks and feels bad. You need to know what it's like to have your friend hug you. That's a nice thing. You should also know what it's like to have your friend's head tip onto your shoulder while you, like, watch a movie and you get a little whiff of their shampoo and you know really confidently that it is their shampoo because they're your friend. You need to know what it is to kind of catch someone's eye and burst into the kind of laughter that makes you feel like you're never going to breathe again, but that'd be okay because at least you'd die happy, you know? Those are all nice feelings. Human beings are social creatures. We need intimacy to live. You shouldn't be sacrificing that just so that you can, like, achieve abs and a sense of moral superiority before you inevitably die. And look, despite all of the cynicism I've had going on for the last 20 minutes, when health and wellness fads come tearing through, I really do try and reserve my judgment. It's hard out here. And sometimes dumping mushroom powder in your coffee or like buying a $90 journal that has you got this embossed on the cover 
is the thing that will feel most helpful for you. Like I said at the top of the podcast, I am mentally ill. (laughs) And sometimes I love to simply buy a soothing face cream that will solve all of my problems. I get it, you know? But I do want you to remember that the most powerful thing for a lot of people who are struggling is actually just as simple as support from their friends, neighbors, and community. Our buddy Halbert L. Dunn actually listed fellowship as one of the core tenets of high-level wellness, citing it as a necessary component of harmonizing the mind and the body. And we can really lose that if we give in to the pushing of the hyper-individualistic wellness grift that's rewarded on most social platforms. And that's why, for the low, low cost of $15.99 a month, I'll be selling subscriptions to my fellowship platform. With the fellowship platform, you'll get early access to the 18 secrets that will transform you. Well, uh, that was my little deep dive on wellness. Thanks for sticking with us while we get back on track. Uh, Remember how I mentioned uh, format changes at the top of the episode? This might be one of them, because in all of my research for this episode, I've gotten real deep into how the isolationism urged by wellness grifts pushes people further down the conspiracy pipeline. And frankly, I'm hooked. So consider this the intro to a two-parter on wellness, I guess. And if you've got a herbal supplement that you'd like to sell me to improve my mind, body, and soul, talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace. This episode of Pop Culture Burner was written and recorded by Alex Johnson and produced and edited by Wesley Fay. The theme song is also by Wesley. Check out popcultureburner.com for full episode notes and sources. Special thanks for this episode go to Suntory Boss Coffee and The Power of Friendship. And to you, thank you for listening. We're so happy to be back. We'd really appreciate if you could subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts so more people can find us. Pop Culture Burner is produced on the stolen lands of the Wongal and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples and we honour and respect them and all First Peoples as the traditional custodians of the lands we live and work on. You have no idea how many times I have had to practice saying biostatistician.